Welcome to Midlife. I'm Lisa Stedman. In episode seven, best-selling author, speaker, and coach Andrea Owen and I dig into going gray, the choice to Botox or not, and the value of trusting yourself and always telling the truth. I've known Andrea since we were in our 20s, and I've always loved, still do, her pull no punches, look in the mirror, face yourself realness. I know you will too. Let's get started. Andrea Owen, welcome to Midlife. Lisa Stedman, thank you for having me on your show. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. So you and I have known each other since early in 150 our years. It's been a long time. And we share that love for writing, empowering self-help books, and using our voices to speak truth. You've been someone I've wanted to have on my Welcome to Midlife podcast for, I mean, I've been birthing this idea for probably the last year. Um, and that desire was actually amplified by a recent Facebook post about you letting your hair go gray. Can we like just start there going gray? Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that that, that inspired you. So I have been coloring my hair, um, gosh, I think around since I was about 20. I'm a natural brunette and I always got highlights and my hairdresser found my first gray when I was 25 and I was like, absolutely not. Like that's not happening. So I've been going gray for a while. I'm 40, I'll be 47 in April. And, you know, it started to get a little bit more obvious as in I was having to go to the hairdresser and it's just so freaking expensive. And I, I had a different hairdresser previously and he had said, he was kind of trying to talk me out of it. And I kept kind of getting the nudge to go gray and I was seeing other women on social media. And I, I my own inner critic was like, you can't do this in your 40s. Like you're just too young to have too a young. full head. And I'm, I'm salt and pepper. Like I'm not totally silver. Um, and I, I talked myself out of it over and over again. And to be honest with you, Lisa, most, well, I would say like 50% of my friends were just aghast when I told them that I was thinking about going gray. Really? You would have thought, yes, you would, I'm not going to name any names, um, but you would have thought I was like defecting against like, <laughs> a, like away from like feminism parties? or something. <laughs> yeah, just exactly. They were just like, What? And I think what happens, and I can't speak for them, but what I think what was happening is like for those women, they were like, okay, does this mean that I have to do it too? Like <laughs> what's what's yeah. going on for me? And and so I really went back and forth for years, years. And I finally decided, okay, when I turn 50 is when I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit um, and I'm just going to grow it out. And so then I got a new hairdresser that I like a lot better. And, she, and I was talking to her about it and she was so kind of like no big deal about it. And here's, here's the truth. And this, this will tell you like how vain I am. I didn't want to grow my gray out and have that line of demarcation only, mostly because I didn't want it to be the first thing that people noticed about me and want to talk about it all the time. Like, right. I'm like, there's Fair. so many more things that are interesting about me. <laughs> Totally fair. So she's a magician and uh, she did something to where I don't even know what she's doing. In hairdresser terms, she kind of like, she I guess she put a toner on my highlights and so it blends a little bit better. So you can't really tell unless you're close up or actually looking for it. But I've got a solid like four to six inches of regrowth right now. I love this. And you know what I find so interesting about everything? And I mean, I, I love this whole conversation. The 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 friends and I, and I say that because yeah. I'm having a similar experience but I'm the oldest of this group of friends that I'm that I'm thinking of and it's around um 
needles in the face yeah. and, and body. And it's very interesting. Like some are super adamant, no needles in the face. And, and I'm going to keep it real. I work in skincare now and needles in the, in the face are kind of my happy place, right. um, <laughs> but not, not, not like crazy, but it's just so interesting how this is something we as women do. We look at others and then we reflect on self and, and I'm all for that piece of it. What I think is so interesting is when that piece triggers something in us that then we are discouraging the person outside of ourselves. Yeah. Yes. I have lots of feelings about this. I here, here's my, here's my hot take. I can't stand it when I see, and this is usually on social media, you know, I'm in like Facebook groups and things like that. I'm in this especially large Facebook group for women in their forties. Um, it's like a fitness type of thing. Hang on. <coughs> I got a tickle. I don't have COVID. Okay. And inevitably the topic comes up. Someone will post about Botox or fillers or resurfacing or some kind of a little more invasive skincare procedure yeah. or treatment. And always there's a handful of people in the thread who say, don't do any of that. Aging is a gift, not given to everyone. My friend died of breast cancer when she was 39. Be grateful for, for aging. And I'm like, shut up. Like, no, <laughs> give people the dignity of their own process. Of course, aging is a gift. Of course, we should be grateful that we get to be in our late 40s. And it's both. Like it, we can have both. You yes, can be grateful that you or. are alive, and at the same time, lean into however you feel your best. And I think that you know, there's radical feminism that says if we completely turn our back on the beauty industry, it would turn it on its head, and you know, rejecting all, especially you know, Western beauty standards. And I get it. I totally get it. And I'm not on board with that. I think that you should be able to do whatever you want with your face or your body. And like, and it's, and it's such a, oh, it makes me so mad because in so many ways we can't win. We either get to a certain age. And I really noticed this, like when I turned about 42, about like my face really started to show changes and its age and the invisibility that comes with that. And in an industry where it matters that I'm attractive or not, you know, like if it's I want to be on the real. news or if I want to be speaking up on stage or if I, you know, I have to have headshots for my books and things like that. Like it is very real, just like you said, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to still be relevant. Do I like that I have to do this? No, that's not true. Do I like that this is an option? This is the best option for me? No. <laughs> The, I don't want to spend all that money on fillers and and uh, but it's it's so infuriating to me on a few levels that this is mostly what women do. This is a thing for us, the extra time and expense. Oh, the as expense. well as if we go the other way, we are we are essentially being punished. Yes. Ooh, we could talk about this all day long. I am so with you. It is a choice that everyone should choose. And and I too wrestle with it. I'm like, do I need to do all the things I do? No, I don't. No. Do mm -hmm. I choose to do them? Yes. Will I thoughtfully ask myself the next time I book an appointment? Let's think about this, Lisa. I, I sat across, so I turned 50 in October and and I, I remember like, you know, a couple 
months ago sitting across the table from a friend who's in her probably late 50s over brunch. And I was looking at her beautiful face and she has not done anything to it. And she's got wrinkles and I was marveling at it. I wasn't going, ew, you're old. I was literally like, God, I love her face. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know that I'm that brave. Like, and I hate saying brave, but like, yeah. I was like, at this age and stage of my life, I too am thinking about relevancy. And and I literally said to my husband today, I was like, you know, maybe when I retire, I won't do this stuff, but I'm not, but don't hold me to that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> don't write that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't write that down. Oh my gosh. We, so you also said something about invisibility, which I'm loving. Um, and part of that goes into our voices and our values. So your most recent book is called Make Some Noise. I think that theme is urgently relevant for midlife women because this is an age where we often become invisible. Our bodies, and even we ourselves may think, and, and I struggle with this. I am really in struggle. This, like actually this morning, I am in struggle about this. Like, oh, those thighs feel a little bigger today. I, I Maybe I don't want to be seen today. And I'm not advocating that point of view. I'm saying that is something that is happening in my own body today. So how can midlife women use the tools in your book to speak their mind, own their strength, and make some noise? Yeah. Well, it's it's a process. I'll start there. And I don't think that – my opinion is that it's not just as easy as listening to a podcast or reading a book and getting the inspiration and motivation – for about 20 minutes and then going out and taking like all sorts of massive action. Uh, that works a little bit, but what I have found what works better and more long-term that sticks is going through the process of unlearning all of the things that patriarchy has taught us. Oh, that takes record, a lifetime. It is a lifetime, right? <laughs> I, I know it, it really does, but that book is mostly, you know, there's 250 more than 250 questions I ask the reader in that book. And it's it's a lot of getting curious about why we have beliefs and thoughts and behaviors the way that we do. I mean, like, let's just talk about um, taking up space, for instance. And what yeah. I mean by that is, you know, saying your opinion, whether it's on social media or at a work meeting or with your partner. It is about um, taking up space in your leadership, you know, trying new things, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what have we learned about women who take up space? Think about, think about even just in the media, women who were cast as leaders typically weren't cast in a nice light. <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking about um, The Devil Wears Prada and Miranda, what was her name? Yeah. Miranda Priest or something? Yeah. Priestley, yeah. I think. And she was so ambitious and so successful and also a bit of a villain and also had a mess of a personal life. And I'm not saying that that's not real life. Like I know that that's real life for a lot of people, but it's like, have we ever seen in the media a woman who like kind of has it all, you know, who's kind and kicks ass in her business and also, or maybe she's single and chooses to be that way because she doesn't, you know, have the time to to want to invest in relationships. It's just when I think back on all of what I saw growing up in the 80s and 90s as as quote unquote role models, there weren't a whole lot who were who embodied all of the values that I want to embody as a woman who takes up space. Wow. 
That's so, yeah, I never even thought about that. I mean, the one that comes to mind, like I grew up watching nine to five with Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda Mm -hmm. and they ended up kicking ass at the end. Like that was But like, there's so few examples of that. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, like if it's take 10 steps back and look at that whole movie, like it's a parody. It's a, it's totally satire. And of course it's a movie and it needs to be entertaining. And I love that movie as much as the next person, but it like, come on, is that really going to happen in real life? Like we yeah, don't yeah. have any examples. Like, their, <laughs> yeah. They're not going to strap their boss to a like dungeon oh scenario. God. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh man. I mean, even so- like, I, I'll give you the example too that I talk about this in the book, like about money. Like, I wrote a chapter in there about money. And I, when I was writing the book, I was thinking back about, and like, do I know of any women in real life and on TV and in movies who were self made, who were wealthy, who didn't get that way either by inheritance or marrying into it? No, mm-hmm. I don't know anybody. Except Cruella DeVille. Oh my God. So funny. She was just flashing through my mind as you were talking. Yeah. And she was the evilest. Even so if you do a quick so Google funny. search of like the evilest Disney villains, she's like in the top five. She was horrific. And I was like five. <laughs> that was like my favorite. I had the little book with the mini record that went with it. And she was my first introduction to a wealthy woman who got that way on her own. Like she was an entrepreneur. Like <laughs> as much as I hate what she did, she was an entrepreneur and she was great at it. Yeah. But um, and some people might be like, oh, it's just a movie. Like, is it that big of a deal? It absolutely is. It absolutely well, it is, is because that's what informs everything. Mm-hmm. I remember. So <laughs> sorry, mom. I'm gonna I'm gonna out you in this moment. Um, <laughs> I remember going to see the the first movie, the first Grace movie in the theater with my mother. Um, and he started to change for her, but then she changed for him. So they both became like bad boy and bad girl. And I remember we right. got up at the end of that movie and my mother said to me, in real life, the bad boy will change to be good for her. And hello, that explains my dating life perfectly. I was like, oh, you're bad? Great. I can make you good. And then was like, why is this so hard? Oh, my gosh. Well, I don't know if you saw this in the book, but speaking of the movie Grease, I have had an obsession with the character Chacha J. Gregorio since I was little because, first of all, I was so interested in why everyone hated her. And, like, the the, the level of confidence that that woman had oh, was off the freaking it. charts. <laughs> I love it. She oozed it. It was beautiful. Totally. But she was not likable, like, at all. God, wow. We're screwed. <laughs> I know. Wah, wah. Okay, Lisa, wah. it's been great talking to you. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is so interesting. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because the whole goal is to, like, really dig into those those beliefs about whether it's midlife or male-female roles or beauty or whatever and mm-hmm. ask ourselves, why have we bought into that? And at this age and stage, what can we rewrite to enjoy things more? So this is like so on time and I'm loving it. And it's really leading to the next question, which is, you know, you are an amazing coach. So in your coaching practice, what do you see as common stumbling blocks for women? And I know you, I think you work with both men and women, but specifically for women in midlife and how can we support them? One of the most common because I usually work with women in their 30s and 40s 
some 50s, but mostly 30s and 40s. And it's a little bit different depending on those two decades. But a lot of what they have in common, especially women in their 40s, is like this is when this is when they start to get to the point where they're starting to not care as much anymore about people's opinions. They're they're sort of dropping off with the people pleasing or at least starting to get angry about it. Do you know what I mean? Like they're like, yeah. like just fed up with it and just tired of it. Like the approval seeking and the people pleasing and the perfectionism and things like that. But they aren't quite skilled enough or have the emotional intelligence enough to be able to um, – to go a different direction. And that's that's about like learning how to set boundaries and have hard conversations, et cetera, which are, are skills that anyone can learn. But what I see happens a lot with women that age is they've kicked ass in their career. They have climbed the corporate ladder. I mean, these women are making so much money. A lot of them have like capped out. So they're looking for another job with another company and things like that. But many times their personal relationships are not great. So they, it's as if they, they're kind of using work as a practice <laughs> to yeah. have the hard conversations and set boundaries. And a lot of them have mastered it. But when it comes to the relationships where there, there's more emotionally at stake, that's where they really struggle. And so a lot of times we spend, we spend a decent amount of time looking at that and what relationships they want to salvage, what relationships are the most important to them, where they need to set these boundaries or have hard conversations or sometimes make amends where they have totally. not behaved well and they want to circle back with people. So we spend a fair amount of time doing that and just helping them learn the skills so they can be resilient and more confident walking into these uncomfortable situations. So is there, you know, is this about learning to be vulnerable? A lot of times, yes. And you know, I'm trained and certified in the work of Dr. Brene Brown. And so a lot of women know Brene Brown's work and they're kind of on board with vulnerability. And what's interesting is here's what I hear a lot is they say, yeah, I really like Brene's books and I watched her Netflix special on Courage and I know she talks about shame a lot, but I don't walk around feeling ashamed. Like I don't, right. I'm not right. walking around with like my yeah. tail between my legs. And I'm like, that's fair. Um, most of, most if not all of the women that follow me or, or work with me are the same. Like they don't feel that way. But what's super interesting about that whole topic is that if you are engaging in people pleasing, approval seeking, perfectionism, numbing out, um, isolating with your problems and things like that, a lot of times overachieving, hyper independence, shame is in the driver's seat. Like you're doing all those things in an effort to avoid criticism, failure, judgment, which are all related to shame. Covert, like shame is is like working with like a trench coat and sunglasses on. Like, <laughs> like you don't see me, but I'm here and I'm in charge. So it's really interesting to help women look at that and how it's wow. life. Mm -hmm. I have never thought of it that way or heard it that way. And I appreciate you saying that because I think we often do think of shame as something so overt, we could identify it pretty quickly. Right. And we, wow. and when we get to a certain age, like we don't, we don't interact with those people who are shaming. Like a lot of people have like really set boundaries with their parents sometimes who have, who operate that way, or they have left a religious organization who operates that way. Friends. And so they yeah. feel good about that, which is fantastic. But there are these more covert ways that shame is still operating in our life. Very interesting. And I, you're so right about these shifts. I, I loved 
so like I said, I, I'm 50 now, but like I loved the 40s because every year in the 40s, the fucks got less. It was like, ooh, 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 I love this. I don't care. Yeah. Um, and, and then what's interesting is I I was terrified of 50. And now to rewrite that leading up to my 50th birthday, I was like, I don't want to enter the 50s feeling bad about this. So what do we got to work on? And and it was amazing. And it was a beautiful journey. And I'm so grateful I went there. And and now I'm like 50. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing about the 50s is I can already feel it. Like, yes, there's less fucks to give. But there's also this like, oh, society's starting to look at me a little differently. Mm-hmm. And that is not something that anyone really prepares you for. And I'm, I'm so fascinated by that and, and my own reaction to it. And I think maybe it's more noticeable because we spent most of the last two years, you know, alone in our houses. Right. So going back out into the world, it's so much more noticeable. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just, it's been very interesting and finding my way with that and, and learning to value myself regardless of what, what's coming back at me. It's, it's an interesting dance. And I'm, I'm still in it. Um, and it doesn't happen all the time. So it's not like every, every person who looks at me is like, ah, you know, but it's, it's just a different thing. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for women who are struggling to navigate life in, in, in the midlife, in the middle? Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting time to feel kind of stuck or maybe you're asking the questions like, what's next? Um, is this all there is? Um, have I wasted years, you know, depending on where you are in your intimate relationships or your career, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a great time if you're feeling that way to go back to basics. Like, what are your values? And if that doesn't resonate with you, you know, you can you can use the word identity or values, but ask start asking yourself the question like what's important about the way I live my life? I know it's a very open-ended question and it is that way on purpose. What's important about the way you live your life? What's what's important to you in general? Like what kind of person do you want to be? Not necessarily what do you want to be doing with your time, but what kind of person do you want to be? And then when you get that down, I would be curious, like, what does that mean? Like, if you want to be somebody who, because a lot of times we answer those with like what we think is going to impress people. Like, I want to live my life from a place of integrity. And like, for me personally, like, that sounds really good and, and like noble, <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> like, I just like, <laughs> that <sounds> but <laughs> I want to. I want to be transparent. Like, I, that's, which is similar. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, what and it's semantics, but it's important. Like, well, this what words resonate matters. with you? Yeah, yeah. And like, what what does that mean? What does that look like? And so, transparency for me means like, I want to always tell the truth, even if it's incredibly uncomfortable, whether it's to someone else or whether it's very much to myself or to my yes. children. Um, because I spent so much time lying to myself and others, like in my especially in my twenties. You know, I want um, trust is huge for me. Like I'm on a I'm on a trust quest, trusting myself and trusting others. So like those are the kind of things that I would I would ask someone. And and like I said, it's definitely going back to basics, which I think we need to revisit every five or ten years. Oh, for sure, because things change. And right. I love trust and truth. And and yes, it's important externally. I really appreciate that you're saying having those experiences with yourself because if you don't trust your own decision making abilities if you look at your track record and you feel bad about yourself i you know i'm thinking of a couple of people in my life that i'm like oh that that must be painful and and 
Yeah. How can I support them with that? But telling yourself and telling others the truth and trusting yourself and creating that kind of zone of, of trust and truth around yourself, um, that can really just change how you feel about things. And, and, and before I forget you, you talked earlier about the money piece and, and making your own money. I like, so there's these great divorces, um, and what we're finding, what society is finding, what the statistics are showing is that women are the ones who typically suffer the most in, in those right. situations. And I'm not discouraging someone from getting divorced. Like, if, if, like please do your thing. Mm-hmm. However, because of the gap of when women often leave the workforce because they had children uh, and then even often struggle to get back in the workforce, if that's what happened. I know that's not everyone's, you know, situation in, in motherhood, but it is for a lot of women. And I'm really super like crazy passionate about bridging that divide of like autonomy and, and, and the choices you've made, like autonomy and motherhood. I want, I want women to have both mm-hmm. um, because I don't want women to get to this stage of life and think I have to hang around this relationship because I don't have my own agency. Right. Because it's just something stuck. that, yeah, it's something that I just want to keep talking about because I don't have a lot of answers. I do, I, you know, I have always believed that I needed to make my own money. Um, and that's based on my own issues of like my, my parents fought about money every day um, mm. and, and stayed married until my mother died. So it wasn't like that got resolved. <laughs> so, you know, really learning how to empower women to have conversations about money to feel empowered about money, whether you're making it or not in your relationship to be talking about it and not thinking the other person is just quote unquote handling it. I just think we need to, and, and this obviously wasn't a question I, I posed to you, but I, I appreciated you know, the, the mention of money. I think it's an important one for all women, specifically midlife women. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned it. And it's, it's layered and complicated, I think for, for, I'm going to venture and say most women when it comes to our relationship with money. And I think if you're our age, you know, Gen Xers, um, you know, younger, younger boomers, I think we typically did not grow up in spaces where we saw, we had models of women who even were in charge of the finances at home. And again, I'm like speaking in generalizations here, but bear with me. I think traditionally, um, you know, our dads worked and, and took care of the money. And still to this day, there are a lot of women who are in marriages, even when both partners work. And I'm talking about, you know, I'm, I'm being very heteronormative here for a second, bear with me that um, the women have no idea what's going on with the finances. And yeah. I was that person for a while, um, partly because I didn't understand the stock market. I didn't understand investments. I didn't know what a 401k meant. I knew that they had one at my job and I was just like, whatever you think, HR person. I didn't understand any of it. And it's 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 really interesting when I hear people talk about the psychology of um, especially Americans, because it's not like this in, in other countries and other cultures, how it's so difficult for us to think towards our future self and, you know, like preparing for the future, yes. like our retirement days, especially when you're, when you're twenties, it's like, what? It's so <laughs> like another lifetime. Uh, yeah. Who's thinking about that? Like happy hour. Right. And, and I think that coupled with the fact that traditionally women were not the experts around their financial house. We have set us, well, patriarchy, I should say, has set us up for 
for great failure. You know, statistically, um, elderly women are way more under the poverty line than yes. than men are. And so, so how do we fix that? Um, first and foremost, I have to mention because I have a twelve year old daughter, I talk to her about money all the time. Like, I want her to not be afraid to talk about it. I want her to not be afraid to like ask her partner about this when does. she does start dating. Like, it has to be a non-issue. It has to be like talking about what is your favorite kind of coffee. Like it's just not a big deal at all. It's not taboo at all. And then, you know, as far as us, the women in midlife, it's never too late to find a financial advisor. I I switched financial advisors over to a woman because that was important to me, partly because I, I wanted that. to support a woman you know, in finance. And also I wanted my kids because she comes to our house, like, well, not during COVID, but she comes to our house to do like the every six months meeting. And like, I wanted my children to see a woman in finance. That was important to me. And it's, I know that it can feel like such a scary thing walking into something where you know nothing, but it, again, it's that vulnerability piece of asking a friend has like some knowledge of it and just asking her like, saying, this is so hard for me to ask you, but like, where do I even start? Or can you recommend your financial advisor? And being very transparent with the financial advisor and saying, I don't have any retirement yet. I don't know where to start. Can you please take baby steps and explain this to me? Y'all, this is literally their job. It is literally ah. their job <laughs> to teach us. We don't go... We don't necessarily go into the relationships with financial advisors being experts. Like, no, that's their job. That's their it's like job. it's like saying I can't take dance lessons because I don't know how to dance. Like, <laughs> well, that's the whole point of going, and it's it is vulnerable. I'm not going to pretend that it's that it's not. But if you think about the cost, and I, I no pun intended, <laughs> it is costing you a lot to, to avoid this topic and put your head in the sand. I did it for years and have, so I many did regrets. it. Yeah. I did it for years too. And I'm thankful. I finally said enough is enough. And so for anyone listening who is like us and, and having put your head in the sand today can be a day you make a change and it's, I don't care your age. It's never too late. And, and your future self is worth it. hundred mm percent. -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, all right. Well, we got to talk about another M, uh, menopause. Has anyone talked to you about it? I feel like this is something that like I'm on the slippery slope of perimenopause and I'm like, damn, why haven't I talked to anybody about this? You know, what's interesting is like the more I talk to women, especially who, you know, have maybe five or 10 years on me, most of them say menopause is that thing that doesn't get talked about as much as puberty. That's but exactly it's right. The same thing. <laughs> it's the same. It's the opposite. So I have a kid going through puberty, uh -huh. and I'm like, same. how interesting is it that she's just starting and I'm starting to end? Right. You know, like so. Like I just, I love that duality, and we talk about it a little bit, not so much, but like we, you know, I do broach it because I, I think it's important for her to understand that, like, whatever she's going through there's another side to it. And, and if we talk about it openly, it like, we can, you know, like there doesn't have to be shame or discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But yes, this is the other side of puberty where that is so, I mean, I guess societally, oh, you're becoming a woman, you know, whereas this is like, oh, you're done, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the myriad of symptoms was something I was unaware of. I think we only hear, <clears throat> excuse me, we only hear about hot flashes 
and hot flashes. Like <laughs> that's it. That's really all I heard about. And come to find out there are lots. And I also found out that if you take, statistically, if you take five women who are going through menopause, two of them are going to have pretty severe symptoms. Um, they're going to get a lot of them, you know, bad wow. hot flashes, all the, all the symptoms. And then statistically, two of them will have moderate symptoms where they might have a few of them for a handful of years and then and then they're they're free and clear. And then one statistically will have very little to no symptoms. So she'll just like stop having a period. Um I vote for that. But anyway, like that's just like one thing that I didn't know. And I also think that, you know, if I think back on on when I went through puberty and I actually wrote about it in my Hello Kitty diary, which I still have. It was 1987, so and it was New Year, so I was almost 12, and I was just starting to go through puberty, and I was starting to gain weight, and my hips were starting to widen. So interesting watching my daughter go through the same thing. I have healed so much of my inner child, let me tell you, watching her right. have the same body as me. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I think about here on the flip side, watching me gain weight and also full transparency scramble to try to figure out why I gained so much weight in such a short amount of time. I can't even tell you how many doctors I've been to, Lisa, where I'm like, is this the pandemic? Is this depression? Is this, um, do I have inflammation? Is, do I have, uh, my, my doctor was even like, you could have like abdominal cysts or something. So, and then, and then I was in her doc, in her office like a couple weeks ago and I, I just let out this big sigh and I said, is this just middle age? <laughs> and she goes, it could be. And I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> but yeah. I've gained 25 pounds since about the summer of 2020. So it might just have been bad timing, like middle age and pandemic. <laughs> well, that's the thing is I feel like for our generation, we're never going to be able to pull those apart. Is it middle age? Is it pandemic? It's it's all. It's right. both. It's either. It's or who knows? <laughs> right. Like it's yeah, so but intertwined. The weight gain has been super interesting because um, I'm on the fence. I Part of me is like, I don't care. The, the thing that annoys me the most is that in 2019, I pretty much bought a new wardrobe. I went crazy at um, Trunk Club at Nordstrom. I bought so much clothes. So I have a closet full of clothes that don't fit me. That's the thing I'm the most annoyed about. Like, That's <laughs> annoying. I don't blame you. <laughs> it's not really the body. Um, and, and a lot of it comes down to like, to be honest, I'm still traditional. Like I'm a midsize, like that's, you know, I'm, I'm not in like a much larger body, which yeah. is a whole different conversation. So I still have that privilege. And the other thing is like, I'm looking at my mother's body and I never thought negatively of her. I, I didn't. And um, but also I grew up in the 80s and 90s when we were bombarded with the aerobics craze and the 90s supermodels and, you know, heroin chic and all of that stuff. Like diet culture is a thing. Yeah. So it's been an interesting roller coaster. Wow. That is interesting. It's, it's interesting that you say you would look at your mother, but you wouldn't think critically of her. Like I'm getting my mother's mm -hmm. chin and neck and I'm really struggling with to make peace with that. And it's it's not something that's bad or wrong it's just I see her now when I look in the mirror and mm -hmm. I'm like oh I you know and my mom passed away four years ago and we have a much better relationship now than we did when she was alive and I'm so thankful for that like wow it's been a real gift but to see her in the mirror is still a challenge 
Yeah. And it's like, okay, okay. Yeah. Can't fight it. You can't. And I also, you know, that's another layer. Thank you for mentioning that. Like it really depends on our relationship with our biological mother. And, you know, it was so funny. I ended up on the phone with my high school boyfriend, whom I hadn't talked to in what, 25 years. And it's a whole nother story for another time, the reason I was on the phone with him. But as soon as I said hello, and he said to me, the first thing he said was, Oh my God, you sound exactly like your mom. And I'm like, I didn't know my voice had changed. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he's like, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what your mom sounded like. But as soon as you started talking, I saw your mom. It's the exact same voice. That's and I was both cool. I was both like, oh, my God. Like, I, I am turning into her and, and thought it was just so interesting that that, that happens for a lot of us. Oh, we are turning. Yeah. No, my husband the other day was like, I'm so, and he never says this, but he's like, I've turned into my father. And I'm yeah. like. Oh my God, even you are saying it now. That's, that's so mm -hmm. cute. Oi. Um, well, okay. Everyone has one of these and they may not know it, but I have a feeling you probably know yours. What's your midlife secret weapon? Oh, that's a good question. Um, immediately what came to me is my friendships. The friendships Ooh. I have with women are, I mean, it blows my mind, Lisa, that I have these types of friendships. And I want to also say that it takes a lot of work. It's very intentional. And I've had to learn what it means to be a good friend. Um, you know, eliminating things like gossip, um, eliminating things like trying to fix someone or give advice when she comes to me with with something. And and also I have one friendship in particular, I have repaired. Um, we were friends in our mid-20s and then in our 30s had a bit of a falling out and then came back together. You know, we both had parents that passed away. We both we were able to have a very vulnerable conversation and make amends for ways that we hurt each other. And also kind of – they, they have this term in coaching that's called designing the alliance and that's basically what we did is – you know, and I wouldn't have been able to do it if she wasn't also on board, which which is hard sometimes. You know, some of us evolve and our, our friends – it's not their destiny. Yeah, it, and, and we have to grieve that. Yeah, but you know, it's it's honestly, it's these people, these women that show up for me. And I, if I had a wish for all women, it was it would be that she, that she could have the kind of friends that that I do. And I never, in my wildest dreams, even knew that something like this existed that women, these women can come together and, and be a soft place for me to land and, and fully see me and hear me in my trauma, in my, like my egregious pain, which I kept locked up for a long time. I was like, nobody's going to see this. <laughs> wow. This is so beautiful. It really is. Anyway, I'm incredibly grateful. You know, that's interesting you say that. I was on a walk yesterday and like audio messaging two of my friends. And I was like, in the past, like I was looking at myself doing this. And in the past, I would not have made time for that. In the past, I would have been like, I don't have the time to like invest in all this verbal chow chow and like, oh my God. Like I really would have dismissed it as something trivial. And, and honestly, it's been the pandemic. I mean, I've had this same circle of f five friends but the pandemic is because we haven't been able to see each other. It's really deepened our connection in other ways. Right. And you're so right. This, these female friendships being, and this was what was healing for me. 
I used to relate much better to men because of my issues with my mother and it was not safe to be vulnerable. So I couldn't be vulnerable around women and learning to be vulnerable around women. And to your point, have women show up for you at your darkest or deepest or perceived ugliest moments and love you through it in any way and all of it. That is such a healing gift you can give to yourself. It truly is. And it's, it's, you know, that's a whole nother conversation for another time. We could go way in depth about like what it takes and what we have to overcome. And like the patriarchy is involved in that too, you know, and like telling us that women can't be trusted and we're all backstabbers and, and also, you know, like what patriarchy has done to men and men in midlife, apparently, according to some study, I can't remember who put it out, but like mid middle-aged men are the loneliest population, at least in the United States. And, um, it just, it's so heartbreaking and it, it's a, it's a huge topic that I think, I mean, I, since, especially since the pandemic, I really understand the attraction of living on a commune. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> I, and I was the type, you know, when I was nursing my kids, I was the type, which some people like gasp when I say this, but like, I will nurse your babies and you can nurse mine. Like as long as it's convenient so I can take a nap like I'll be on like nursing schedule for like six hours. <laughs> I don't care. It's just milk. <laughs> I love that. Let's all work together as a team. But I want to oh, be the leader. God. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Middle-aged men are the loneliest. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm fascinated by that. I'm going to do some digging on that because I, I could see that just watching my husband and his subtle shifts um, and, you know, yeah, he doesn't want to leave the house anymore. And when he does, he's like, the world. And, and I'm like, yeah. oh, this is an interesting shift for you. And again, midlife pandemic, either or both, uh, who knows? Well, apparently, so from what I understand, from what I remember reading, I, I don't know if the article was in the New York Times or something like that. A lot of it has to do with the divorce rate, especially in our age group, where when a couple gets divorced, a heterosexual couple gets divorced, typically it was the woman who was in charge of all the social events. Yes. And so when they split up, the man doesn't have the contacts or he doesn't have the skills to be able to like even reach out and, and like plan things. And it just, and you know, it, I, I think in some ways it kind of threatens their masculinity to, and I'm using like air quotes over here to reach out and say, Hey, I'm lonely. Hey, I need support here. And so they just kind of try to power on. Yeah. I'm even thinking my dad. So my dad's 81. And when my mom passed, so this is four years ago, so he was in his seventies and my dad was the healthiest griever I've ever met. Hmm. He said, I'm not going to date for a year. And I thought he was kidding. I was like, who's going to date you? You're 70. Like whatever. Um, now he has an amazing girlfriend. So haha, I was wrong. Um, <laughs> but the thing that he was really clear about was he said, I have seen men go downhill after their wives died and I'm not going to be that person. So I'm going to get out in my community. I'm going to make sure I'm doing all. And he wasn't necessarily a social person when he worked. I think in mm-hmm. retirement, he got better about that. Um, but he has a thriving social life, even in a pandemic where like he's trying to be really safe. Like he will still pick and choose how he gets out and interacts. And I admire because I think that's rare. And honestly, like he's like, I'm just like, man, you could, he could write a book about healthy grieving. It's been, um, it's been inspiring to watch. 
Wow. That's amazing. I, I love that story. And I, I wish that it was, he should write a book maybe, or at least like a pamphlet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he should do seminars. Um, so final question, my friend, and I have loved this conversation and it feels like we're just scratching the surface. Um, what are you looking forward to as you continue through midlife? Um, probably, you know, touching on what we talked about a little bit, the internal journey, a few things. So like many, when the pandemic hit, it kicked up some of my old trauma and I hired a new therapist and we did some, some like somatic experience work, which is another conversation for another time, but realizing how much inner teen, inner teenager work I need to do. Mine wasn't so much like inner child. Mine definitely was inner teenager. So that's something I'm, I'm working through. And I think I have like, you know, a few more years of that. And also like still working on the body acceptance and just shopping for bathing suits. I'm kind of excited. I'm like, oh, I get to like look at a whole new kind of bathing suit that that's going to work for me. And, you know, I'm done wearing that kind of bathing suit. So I, some of these things sound a little bit trite, but like that, but just a, a whole myriad of things. You know what else I'm really looking forward to? I am looking forward to like having a full head of salt and pepper hair, like starting to go silver and and surprising people with how much space I take up. And just like when when we live in a culture that tells middle-aged women to take a seat or to quote unquote stay in our lane, which is like old lady lane, you know, like <laughs> go move to Florida and be a golden girl with the rest of your friends. It's like absolutely not. This is the time where I am the wisest. This is the time where I have probably the most confidence I ever have. And I'm going to tell you about it. Like so if you don't like it, yes. move along. Trust yourself. Tell the truth. Those are epic and inspired words to live by. Thank you, Andrea, for being you. So what's your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Andrea? I'd love to hear from you. Tweet me at Lisa Stedman. And stay tuned. On the next episode of Welcome to Midlife, my guest is award-winning journalist and author Vicki Larson. During our candid conversation, we myth-bust the outdated notion that you can't find love after a certain age, explore the cloak of invisibility that often accompanies being midlife, and address why every single woman, yes, even you, need to start having meaningful money conversations with yourself and others like right now.